Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for tuning in. A little later in the show, we're going to talk about the ballot question over the Regional Transit Authority, funding the Regional Transit Authority. Voters in Washington, Wayne, Oakland, and Macomb all have a chance to send money to devise a better transit system than we have here in Southeast Michigan. Of course, we have been talking about this for 40 years in this region, trying over and over and failing to come up with a way to work together uh, among all of those communities to sew a transit system together. This marks the best opportunity, I think, in that 40 years to actually do it. But, of course, it's not without controversy. Some people say, the plan is not ambitious enough. Some people say it won't be funded well enough. Some people say that because DDOT and SMART, the two transit systems we have, one in the city, one in the suburbs, will still continue to exist, that the RTA doesn't really solve the problems that we have. So we're going to talk for a long time about uh, that plan, the RTA plan, the funds, what they will go for, and we'll take a look, a close look, at how much people will pay and how that varies across communities here in the region. You're not going to want to miss that conversation. It'll happen at about half past the hour. And we're, of course, going to want to hear from you during it. 313-577-1019 is the number. What are you thinking about doing about the RTA millage? Is this, for you, an opportunity to move this community into the future? Or do you just see it as another reason to take money out of your wallet? through taxes. Up front, though, I wanted to spend some time talking about presidential elections. We're now less than a week away from the election on November 8th, which will decide whether Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, or I suppose one of the other candidates who will be on the ballot, will be the next president. But presidential elections don't just shape the federal government's policies for the following four years. They also shape our identity as a nation. Each presidential election up to this point has affected the way our political system operates and how we, as Americans, respond to the ebbs and flows of history. Past elections have cemented the value we put on the peaceful transfer of power. They have challenged our political processes, ability to root out corruption, and they've threatened to break our nation in two. So what's going to be the legacy of this election? We won't know for years to come. It won't happen on November 9th. It won't happen on January 20th, 2017 either. There will be a very long period of time before we know in history what place this election will have. But what can we as voters learn from history, the past, as we go to the polls next week? What does the past, our past, tell us about the election. Here to sort through that with me is Mark Kruman, a professor of history at Wayne State University and uh, the founder of uh, the, the Center for Citizenship at uh, Wayne State University. Uh, Mark Kruman, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. I'm pleased to be back. Yes, always good to see you. Uh, I figured the best way to structure this conversation would be to start talking about specific elections in our past. Uh, And I love this stuff because I'm sort of a history buff myself and, of course, have spent a lot of time reading about different elections. 
we've had several times in the past where some of the things that we see going on today, some of the questions that we're facing today have reared their head in the political process before in presidential elections. So I wanted to have you help us think about how those elections inform the choice that we're making November 8th, how they inform the way we ought to see the choice that we're being asked to make. Um, and so I'm going to let you start. Uh, you can pick the year and uh, the contest. Uh, which one do you think we ought, to, we ought to set the tone with to start thinking about how history informs what we're doing next week? Well, in answer to that history quiz. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I su- <laughs> Early I su- morning quiz. I suggest that uh, we begin with 1800. Yes. Uh, the, the election of 1800. The election of 1800 and the competition between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, the incumbent. Yes. And and I should also say I have uh, also become a huge fan of the musical Hamilton. And this election is a pivotal point in that narrative. It, it uh, Hamilton is, of course, a surrogate for some of the political interests and personal interests that rear their heads during that election. He, of course, is not on the ballot, but his rival, one of his chief rivals, Thomas Jefferson, is, and he plays a pretty key role in helping sort of shape what what ends up happening in one of the parties during that election. Right, and uh, Jefferson's vice presidential running mate was Aaron Burr, who ultimately uh, killed Alexander Hamilton. Not over the election of 1800, but uh, over the, the governorship, I believe, of New York, which right. uh, I think that, lost later. Right. I think that uh, Jefferson himself would have been happy to have uh, <laughs> uh, Hamilton have won that, uh, that duel. Uh, but uh, 1800 is, is crucial because, like many, if not most, of our elections, uh, those who are contesting it have seen it as an existential crisis, that the very future of the republic is at stake. And in 1800, they'd been following on years of intense conflict, including uh, the Federalist Party that uh, John Adams uh, at least was the titular head of, uh, had enacted uh, Alien Sedition Law Acts, which uh, ultimately uh, restricted uh, criticism of the government. Mm -hmm. And from the Federalist perspective, the Republicans were going to bring a French-style revolution to the United States Uh, The uh, French Revolution itself had uh, had become intensely violent Uh uh, uh, by that time. And at the same time, Republicans thought that if Federalists continued in place, that they would replace it with a monarchy. Right. So the consequence was that they really imagined the world was going to come to an end. They didn't have any experience with two-party politics. Sure. They assumed when one party won, the world was over. 
And indeed, when Jefferson did win, an incredible number of Federalists, in effect, went home. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and, and waited uh, either to be called back to save the country or to watch it go to its, uh, to its doom. Right. And, and this is the first election we should, should point out where we do have these, these things that we call political parties vying for uh, control of, of the government. This is the emergence of partisan politics at the presidential level. Uh, yes, except they didn't think of themselves in that way. They only thought of their opponents as partisans. Uh, that they, in effect, spoke for the country as a whole, <laughs> and the opposition was a group of uh, self-interested individuals who were going to destroy the liberties of the people. And, of course, that's never part of the narrative in between the political parties today. Of uh, <laughs> uh, th- the whole idea of, uh, of an existential crisis <laughs> clearly has in a lot of ways, become uh, the major narrative sure. of uh, of this year's campaign. Right. Uh, but in the other point to add about 1800 was that it represented a crucial moment in political history because John Adams didn't resist the transfer of power to... Thomas, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson, right? He accepted the election results and said, he, "Well, in the that's end, the way it goes. yes, he yes. did." <laughs> yeah, it was a very—I mean, it was a very close election. It goes to the House of Representatives, right? Uh, uh, right, but the the contest ended up between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr and Aaron in the Burr. House of Representatives right. because they had a tie in the uh, electoral vote. Yeah. Yeah. And they didn't have a separation of presidential and vice, and vice presidential, presidential votes, votes yeah. which came quickly after. after right. Uh, Jefferson goes on to try to amend the Constitution to make sure that doesn't happen again. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Mark Crewman. He's a professor of history and the founder of the Center for the Study of Citizenship at Wayne State University. We're talking about historical elections today. One week, uh, less than one week, in fact, out from the 2016 presidential contest. What do we? What can we look to in history? Which elections can we go back and look at that tell us something about what's going on today? Uh, if you have uh, memories of a presidential election or studied up on elections in history that you think stand out in this way, either were significant because of the candidates or the issues or the parties involved, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put a comment there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work your comments into the conversation. Uh, Professor Grumman, uh, 1824 and 1876 are two other dates that uh, that I know you want to talk about. And, and in both of these cases, uh, the question of corruption and what happens uh, when there are accusations or rumors of corruption in a presidential election, which again, boy, we never see that happen uh, <laughs> today. Uh, but but certainly in those two elections, the, 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 the swirl of accusation about corruption really, really defined the contest and defined some of the politics that that followed. Well, 
1824, you see the emergence really of the first popular candidate for uh, for president, Andrew Jackson, who uh, at least is portrayed in campaign biographies as the uh, Hercules who would come and clean out the uh, cesspool uh, that was Washington, D.C. And uh, this in, is a man who in 1821 had said of himself, uh, I know what I'm fit for. I can lead a rough group of men, uh, but I am not fit to be president. Uh, most of his opponents, especially John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay, agreed with him. Jackson got a plurality of the uh, popular vote, but as uh, we all know, uh, the U.S. does not elect a president with a bipopular vote. Right. And it went to, uh, to the Electoral College and ultimately to the House where Henry Clay threw his support to John Quincy Adams uh, in a way that would not have been unexpected by the framers of the Constitution. Uh, they agreed on policy, and Clay clearly saw his political future allied with John Quincy Adams. And Andrew Jackson and his supporters viewed this as a corrupt bargain and spent the next four years seeking to uh, <laughs> delegitimize and successfully so the uh, the Adams administration. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 1876, Hayes 18 Tilden uh, also also sort of bathed in this this sort of uh, swirl of corruption. Well, I think that the 76 election is particularly, valuable in helping us to think a little bit about today because it speaks to the ways in which elections can be shaped in extra or illegal ways. Yes. And it's it's very clear that from uh, 1875 on, uh, white Democrats in the South were intent on preventing African Americans from voting. Yes. Uh, they'd been exercising the right to vote in most cases in the South uh, since 1868, and uh, white Democrats were determined to keep them from voting. And you can see how this affected, for example, Mississippi state elections in 1875. Uh, but also was an effective device to keep African Americans from voting in 1876. Yeah, yeah. And, and of the, course, that goes on for a century in the Democratic Party uh, after the Civil War, certainly not after 1876, and it becomes sort of the the uh, one of the one of the tension points in the Civil Rights Movement, of course, between the two parties in the 1960s, the 1950s and 60s. Right. The difference is, is that they effectively uh, legalize it and it becomes embedded in uh, southern state constitutions in ways that did not violate the 15th Amendment, but which prevented 
African-American men and then African-Americans generally from uh, casting vote. Right, right. Uh, but the, the use of violence then became unnecessary. The, the other side of 76 was that the, in a number of southern states, Republicans still held sway and election commissioners throughout ballots where basically where they chose and were able to present to Congress uh, election totals that gave their states to Republicans. This was particularly the case in Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina. Yeah. And, and in all of these stories from the past, we see little slivers, I guess, or little hints, uh, reflections maybe, of the things that we are talking about now in the presidential election. I mean, all of these issues uh, still sort of rear their heads in our, in our politics. And I guess one of the lessons is that no matter how, um, how bitter the election seems to be, no matter how bitterly opposed we seem to be from each other from each other for the most part these elections take place and life goes on america survives i guess the one exception to that of course is the election of 1860 which uh, which after abraham lincoln is ascended to the presidency the the union dissolves at least for a, a temporary period of time yes i think the the civil war in that sense represents uh, the failure of the system, a, a recognition uh, that or on the part of white Southerners, uh, a belief that their world was going to come to an end if they acknowledged Abraham Lincoln's election in the sure. end. The secession crisis and the beginning of war were more complicated than the election itself, but it's very clear that the election triggered the uh, the secession of the Deep South states because they came to believe that it would threaten slavery. Yes. Uh, let's go to the phones here real quick. Uh, Tim in Farmington Hills. Tim, Hi, welcome thank to you for today. taking the call. Sure. I, along, I, I've had a question for a long time about it, Hamilton. Uh, okay. When, <laughs> when, and I'm not sure if the, the story I've been telling has been correct. When... We first were trying to, when Washington was trying to get some coordination between the federal government and the individual states, I understood that he was having problems, and Hamilton schemed up that if the federal government bought all of the state's debts, that he could then, by doing that, by offering to do that, he could negotiate some control over the state's as a, a, a country rather than individual states, and that when Hamilton proposed that and Washington accepted that, that idea, he went to his friends and told them to buy up all the outstanding debt of the individual colonies <laughs> so they because were. they were devalued so much because all the states were broke. And then when they conjured up this deal 
all his friends and maybe himself <laughs> got rich it. off of it. Yes, <laughs> that's is that it. true. I, you know, Tim, that's a great question. I mean, I know some of the details of what you're talking about. I know that Alexander Hamilton did uh, proffer the idea that the federal government should buy state debts after the Revolutionary War. Lots of states, of course, were were in deep debt uh, because of the war, and and he thought that the federal government would sort of become more powerful. Uh, by by buying that debt, uh, I don't know about the second half of that story. I don't know that I've ever heard that before, Professor Crewman. He uh, actually had tipped off uh, some fellow members of Congress about it, uh, but it was part of a larger issue of paying the debt. It it did indeed involve the assumption of state debts, but a number of states, like Virginia, had already paid off or were making major strides toward paying off yes. their debt, uh, the, and which was one of the major reasons why the federal capital ended up in Washington, D.C. Uh, the other part was the assumption of the whole debt of the federal government from the American Revolution, because both of those were designed to demonstrate that this was a country that took its responsibilities seriously, that when it entered a credit market, that it would repay its debts. It make good on it, right. Right. Yeah. An important lesson for today. Yeah, a very important lesson for today. Okay, Professor Mark Kruman, Wayne State University founder of the Center for the Study of Citizenship. Thanks, as always, for being here on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. All right. Up next, we're going to talk about the Regional Transit Authority on the ballot November 8th, the funding for it. Should we do that? Or is that just another tax, another way of taking money out of people's wallets? We'll talk about it next on Detroit Today. Stay with us. <laughs> 